1: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. You know, there was a famous film many years ago starring Frank Sinatra. And at one point in the movie, there's a line as he's pondering the possibility of becoming a father for the very first time. And he opines that you can have fun with a son, but you've got to be a father to a girl. Well, there's a degree to which that might be true. But from the broader perspective, I think most today would argue that Boys and girls both need a solid male role model, a father in their life. And of course, God designed it that way. And as we look at the many struggles that we see with the American family today and the difficulties in society, quite often we draw the conclusion that it's either an absent father or a father who grew up lacking the proper modeling from his own parents in order to really understand what it means to be a husband and a father and a man. Taking a look at this topic today, a new book entitled Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood. And its author, our guest today on Lifeline and certainly no stranger to KFAX listeners, he's Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today, heard weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. And Dennis, as always, a thrill to have you on the program.
2: Craig, great to be with you. We love the Bay Area and uh, have a ton of listeners out there. We're thrilled to be on your your station.
1: And great for the opportunity to talk about this new book, a, a book that I think, you know, dealing with a topic that perennially seems to be a challenge to our society today. Uh, it's amazing how oftentimes women will call up to a program like mine, and I'm sure you at Family Life Today hear it all the time. They'll just say, I only wish my husband would be a father, or if he could just learn how to be... The man of the household. Why is it that this seems to be for growing numbers of men in our society today so problematic that they don't understand what it means to be a courageous man?
2: I think for the past, uh, well, at least three decades and maybe four, men have been fair game to make fun of, to uh, pull out the gender blender culture that we have and kind of homogenize men and women together and say, other than the obvious physical differences, there really are no differences between the sexes. And God made them male and female. He made them uh, to be two distinct sexes with different assignments and certainly some mutual responsibilities. But I think a lot of men today are confused. They don't know how to do manhood. And as a result, they don't have a vision for what it looks like. And what I did, Craig, was about 12 years ago, I, I decided I was going to write a book to men and come alongside them and call them to courageous manhood and encourage them in the process, not beat them up. Not take them to task, not shame them, not blame them, but just say, come on, you can do this thing. Let me give you a vision of what it looks like and s- talk about some steps that a man needs to take in his lifetime. And I'll tell you, Craig, I thought it was going to be an easy assignment, but I had four false starts in writing this book. And finally, on the fifth time, I was able to uh, get it right. And uh, we've slung it out there, and it's really been flying out the door. We had over 20,000 copies sold and a little over a
1: half, four months. Wow. And, and you know, when we think of this topic, I wonder how much of the problem, beyond the fact that there's been a breakdown in the the lineage of role modeling from father to father to son and so forth down through the generations. Then, too, I wonder, Dennis, from your research, is part of the problem here, too, also a, a false understanding of what manhood means? I, I'm thinking of, for example, a lot of the exaggerated Hollywood images. You know, the guy covered in tattoos that smashes aluminum cans on his forehead, and that somehow is an image of modern-day manhood. Masculinity.
2: You know, I think to answer that question, I'll just take you to the five steps, because I think the answer is found as I kind of walk my way through them. Um, I believe there are five steps a man was designed to have before him as he goes through life. The first one is boyhood. Uh, he's designed by God to step out of boyhood into adolescence. That's the second step. And Paul talked about in First Corinthians 13, uh, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I behaved as a child, but when I became a man, he said, what, what did he say? I put away childish things. And so God designed a man not to stay on the boyhood or the, the adolescent step, but to step up to the manhood step and not, not straddle with one foot in manhood, one foot in adolescence standing sideways. I believe he designed us to turn our backs on youthful lust, on wanting to play games, on wanting to uh, abdicate responsibility and assume the responsibility of what it means to be a man. Get a job, get married, raise children, become a father, and not just father children, but raise children with purpose. And then there's those two final steps that I have that most men don't realize are out there and don't don't experience the bonus and the benefit of, but there's the mentor, the mentoring step, and then there's the patriarch step. God designed men, I believe, Craig, to To multiply their lives out. That's what it. That's what it means to be a mentor. Paul wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy two two. He said, "These things which you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also." There were four generations there. God made men to be a mentor and to be mentored. Every man listening to my voice right now ought to have a couple of younger men. Who he's mentoring, reaching down, calling him up, and he ought to have one or two older men in his life that are calling him up. We all need it. We were all designed by God to not only help others learn and become disciples, but we were also called to be learners as well and to be disciples of Jesus Christ, too.
1: So, lacking all of this, I mean, it's easy to see that one of the the fundamental problems, then, in developing a biblical understanding of what manhood means, that courageous manhood, as you talk about inside the book, is that, what, we're we're either skipping some of these stages or steps, or we get them out of order, or or perhaps just simply get stuck?
2: Well, you know, I am going to read you something from the book, and it's not something I wrote. It's from an advertisement, and I'll not tell you who who did the advertisement until I finished the piece but it's it's an unlikely an unlikely source to be writing something so pithy about being a man here, here it is once upon a time men wore the pants and wore them well women rarely had to open doors and little old ladies never had to cross the street alone men took charge because that's what they did but somewhere along the way the world decided it no longer needed men Disco by disco Latte by foamy non-fat latte Men were stripped Of their khakis And left stranded On the road Between boyhood And androgyny But today There are questions Our genderless society Has no answers for The world sits idly by As cities crumble Children misbehave And those little old ladies Remain on one side Of the street For the first time Since bad guys We need heroes We need grown-ups we need men to put down the plastic fork, step away from the salad bar, and untie the world from the tracks of complacency. It's time to get your hands dirty. It's time to answer the call of manhood. It's time to wear the pants. Now, Craig, that was an advertisement for jo- for Dockers jeans.
1: Wow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wish I'd writ- I- I'd written that myself.
1: Absolutely. I mean, talk about an accurate depiction. I mean, as you were reading that, Dennis, I thought, boy, so much of this summarizes what has been the, the feminization of manhood and the masculization of femininity.
2: And, and, Craig, I think within the chest of men, there is a desire to do the courageous thing. I think they really do want to take the step up. And make the difference in the world God designed them to make. Today at lunch, I had lunch with a guy who um, uh, I had met uh, as a result of, of having a problem in, in my life and I needed a professional to help me with. And he possessed the skills I needed. And in the process of him fixing what I needed to have fixed, I gave him this book. He calls me back two days later and he goes, I couldn't put it down. He said, Dennis, the reason is they handed me two babies when I became a father and there were no instructions mm-hmm. on them. I didn't know what it meant to be a man, a husband, or, or a daddy now. How do I do this thing? And so I think we we, we kind of reserve heroism and uh, courageous acts for soldiers on a battlefield, which certainly that occurs. But I think today, Craig, some of the most Heroic acts that are occurring are men who are pushing away from pornography. They're assuming their responsibility as husbands. They're taking on the, the load of the covenant that they made with their, with their wives when they got married a number of years ago. And they say, I will not quit. I will love you as Christ loved the church. I'll nourish you. I'll cherish you. I'll face this issue we've got with debt, with illness with a child and we'll face it together and that's the kind of courage that's needed today and um, I just think men long for another man to come alongside him and put his arm around him and say you can do this thing you really can
1: a look at Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood. Its author, our special guest on this edition of Lifeline, Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today. You can get more information about the ministry online at familylife.com. That's familylife.com. And, of course, tune into the program weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dennis Rainey on his new book, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to Lifeline. Once again, we're visiting today with a very dear special guest. Many of you, in fact, to spend your mornings with him as part of Family Life Today, weekday mornings at 830 here on KFAX. He's Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today. New book out entitled Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood. You know, part of this, I think, disintegration that we've seen, Dennis, over generations, that kind of generational disconnect, in areas such as mentoring and, and patriarch and so forth. I, I walked into the bank the other day and there was a woman a couple of steps behind me. And so as I got to the bank door, I pulled the door back and stepped aside and they just, you know, prepared to kind of nod my head with a good morning greeting. And instead, she turned to me and said, thanks, but I I can get it myself. <sighs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, all the hard work that my dad went through 40 something years ago, plus training me how to open the car door for a lady, open the, the, the door to the grocery store or whatever for a lady, because that's what gentlemen do in polite company. And now fast forward a few decades and suddenly you're getting yelled at for doing what I had learned to be was just a proper, proper and appropriate manly behavior
2: yeah, and it' uh, common courtesies, uh, we don't think of that being a part of being a real man, but I'll tell you what, my dad was was that way. he He didn't grow up with a lot of training, but he was a real gentleman, and he treated women with nobility and respect and um, uh, and with honor and i picked that up from him and i couldn't agree with you more i think if there's ever been a need for us to have an epidemic of common courtesy and and for men to lead the way in this training their sons it's today and and i'll tell you one of the ways we need to be we need to be we need to show common courtesies and kindness is when we go through the airport and we go through tsa and we're having to take our shoes off and put our computers in the, the plastic bins and go through there, just try try this the next time you go through, Craig. As a man, look, look, look one of them in the eye and say, you know, I want to thank you for your work. I bet you get a lot of compliments, but I just want to thank you for your work. And you know what I've been told? They've said, I, we've, I've been spit on. Uh, I've been cursed out numerous times. People seldom say thank you. And I've had a number of them come back and say, you know, I really appreciate you expressing a, um, a gratefulness to me. You're the first person today, or, or maybe the first person in a long time. Or I, think our, I think our country um, is kind of spiraling downward toward more of a barbaric behavior. When men don't behave as men, as God designed them to be, Um. The result it just isn't good.
1: Well, and I think part of it, too, as you underscore inside the pages of stepping up a call to courageous manhood, is this disconnect, Dennis, uh, that we are seeing a lack of, of maturity, uh, an absolute fleeing from any level of accountability or responsibility. And, and as much as there is this generational disconnect that so many young men and girls, for that matter, that are being raised in single-parent families where there's either not a mom present to, to model for the kids or a father present, and, and all of a sudden this fundamental disconnect in the way God has established our society from a biblical standpoint is, is, I think, in many degrees causal to this. Because let's face it, if you don't have anybody to model after, then how will you know how to behave when you get to adulthood?
2: You know, I've got a quote in the book in the, on the bo- about the boyhood step, and it reads like this, a boy without a father. A boy without a father figure is like an explorer without a map. Mm -hmm. Boys need men, fathers who are fully standing on the manhood step, reaching down to them on the boyhood step saying, come on up, son. Here's how you do it. And they talk about how you do it, but they also model how you do it and and i just remember my dad my dad's my dad's dad deserted him when he was a boy along with his other eight siblings and i don't know where my dad learned how to be a man learned how to be a father a husband but but he could have been a victim but he decided not to be passive but to to initiate and and i believe initiation is one of the essences of masculinity is the exact opposite the easiest thing for a man to do is nothing Uh, I'll tell you a story I think I told this story in the book but I went to one of my kids 8th grade uh, dances at the cafeteria and when I arrived at the cafeteria the dance had been going for a while and the room was almost totally dark with the only light that was on was over by the door where a bunch of parents were huddled up and when we walked in the door the parents said have you seen that dance they're doing over there you're not gonna believe how, how vulgar that dance is. You just gotta go look. So I kind of thought, this is kind of interesting. The kids are all over in the dark doing something obscene and the parents are in the light. And so I walk over there and I'd never seen a dance like this. But they were right, it was absolutely off the charts vulgar. And so I sat there and my hands started getting clammy. And I thought, I'm, I'm afraid of a 14 year old teenage boy He's got pimples all over his face. I'm 45 years old, for goodness sakes. What is wrong with me? And so I just stepped out and stepped up, and I tapped the young man on the shoulder, and I says, hey, knock it off. That's obscene. You shouldn't be treating that young lady like that. And I turned to the young lady, and I said, young lady, you're going to be somebody's husband someday. You're going to be some, some husband's wife someday, and, and you need to make sure young men treat you with respect. And I looked over my shoulder, and here comes another parent. He started tapping people, the young people on the shoulder. Billy Graham made a statement. He said, when one person takes a stand, the spines of others are are stiffened. Courage begets courage. And I think what's missing today, uh, Craig, is we're not telling enough of these stories of how men have done courageous things. I want to ask you to answer this question right here on the air. Um, this one of my favorite questions to ask other men when, you, when we get together and have dinner and we got time to answer the question. The question is this, Craig. What is the most courageous thing you've ever done in all your life? Wow. Now, as you think about answering that, let me tell you what courage isn't. Courage, or what, what, what the answer isn't, excuse me. It's not saying, I've never done anything courageous. Uh, courage is doing your duty in the face of fear. It's doing your duty in the face of challenge. It's, it's doing your duty and refusing to do nothing. And all of us have performed numerous acts in our lifetimes that were courageous. And what happens is men don't talk about how they've been courageous in, in maybe s- some relationship they had. Maybe it was with their father. Maybe confronting him about alcoholism, uh, confronting him around an affair. I've had those things mentioned as we've talked around the dinner table. You know, courage is not reserved for a battlefield in a foreign country. Courage can occur in all kinds of settings and situations. So, Craig, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done in all your life?
1: Well, I tell you, thinking through the answer to that, I I pondered back to a time in North Korea going in with a group of fellow Christian broadcasters, and there were a couple of ladies in our group, and we were bringing in some Bibles in with us. That is, of course, a massive no-no, and one of the border guards was about to catch one of the ladies, and I came in and, and, and basically created a bit of a distraction putting the attention off of them and on to me. And, of course, I'm carrying Bibles as well. And I thought, well, if somebody's going to end up going to jail here, it's probably better me than them. That, that was one of the stories that came to mind.
2: That's good. You had to face fear, and you did your duty. You stepped up. And, you know, I just think with this movie coming out this weekend, Courageous, uh, we've been interviewing Alex and Stephen Kendrick on our broadcast, Family Life Today. If you missed it today at 8.30 uh, on on Family Life Today, you can go online, listen to it. You really ought to listen to the interviews of these guys, because I think God's up to something, calling men back to courage, specifically courage around being a man, being a husband, and being a father, and caring about our community. Craig, I I think today what is happening in community after community across our country is evil. Evil is preying upon our children, our families, and it's eating them alive. And some of the evil is being pumped into our homes at our own volition and choice around choosing pornography. And so for some men, the most courageous thing they need to do is break an addiction, they need to step away and step out of something that has control of their lives, and, and step up and say, you know what, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the, the doorway through which light and righteousness gains entrance into my home.
1: Not sin. So much not of this, people. Dennis, is about making the right choices, and I, I want to pause on that point point, allow our listeners to ponder. We're going to take a brief time out, come back to some more observations. Our special guest today, Dennis Rainey, host of Family Life Today, the broadcast weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. Just go to FamilyLife.com. That's FamilyLife.com, where you can hear not only the podcast of today's broadcast of Family Life Today, but also get information about ordering a copy of Dennis's latest book, The one we're discussing right now stepping up a call to courageous manhood a brief time out back with some more insights from dennis rainey as this edition of lifeline continues
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
1: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our very special guest. He's Dennis Rainey, host of Family Life Today. Again, the new book, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, available through Bay Area Christian bookstores as well as through the Family Life website, familylife.com. That's familylife.com. You know, just before the break, Dennis, we were talking a bit about uh, learning how to act in a courageous fashion. And you mentioned some of the things that are besetting the American family today, whether we're talking about uh, kids that are trapped under the of peer pressure that leads to sexually acting out, rebellion, pornography, drugs, the whole list. Some people might say, well, it just seems as if sin is more abounding these days. I have to wonder, Dennis, in the grand scheme of things, is it a case where somehow there's more sin let loose on the world today, or is part of this just a lack of light? In other words, could we stem the tide? Could we turn the direction of what's happening in our society and in the American home today if more Men would step up, be a, a, a husband to the wives, be a father to their children, do the kind of, of mentoring and modeling that is necessary, and in particular, help young boys and girls understand what their responsibilities ought to be and where the limits should be?
2: Great question. And uh, I'm going to let Isaiah, I'm going to let Isaiah answer or cast a little light on the answer. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah is talking about how bad the day was. He says, we growl like bears, we moan like doves. They're looking at the injustice, the lack of mercy in the culture, and it's just causing a grief that that just causes people to shrivel up and, and to just retreat. And then it says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. Mm. The picture here is that things get so bad that the, the righteous stand away from the battle with their arms folded going, you know, it's just too bad. This is all going bad. This is just, it's really, you know, there's a lot of evil taking place. And then listen to what he says. He says, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The picture here that Isaiah paints is that truth is not standing up erect in the street for people to see the standard. Instead, it's flat on its face, it's stumbled in the streets. And it says, as a result, uprightness can't enter. And then it says, truth is lacking, and as a result of truth lacking, it says, people who were actually designed by God to prey upon evil, to push back against evil, the very evil we were meant to conquer, turns around and preys upon us. It says, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I I think the problems that we're facing in our nation are a bunch of very small personal battles at grassroots America that if those who profess to follow Jesus Christ would begin to turn around and pray upon evil and push back against evil and say, you know what, that's indecent. Like I did in a bookstore in uh, Grand Central Station in in, in Manhattan about uh, six or eight months ago, I was there and I walked by a book and it had it had a title to a book that was a, that was a uh, it's a curse word except it's a vulgar curse word. And I didn't go up with a Bible and beat the guy up who owned the store, but I just I just have to tell you I was getting ready to buy some stuff and I'm not going to buy anything because I'm really offended by by your book and. It it resulted in a very healthy conversation between that shop owner and me. And you had to wonder, how many people have walked by that book? I saw a little kid looking at it, a six-year-old kid. And indecency, vulgarity, evil is encroaching in our society. And the, the statement that was made, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do what? Nothing. Nothing. And so guess what? that's what we do because we think it's somebody else's battle it's not mine well, you know what? I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to fix every evil. I can't. There is a lot of evil today. Back to your original question: Do I think things are more evil today? I, I don't think so. I think evil has more access to our lives in, in terms of privacy in our homes today than has ever existed. The internet being piped into our homes, cable TV, uh, pornography is destroying a generation of boys. The, the average age boys are now being being taught to look at pornography, is not 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's ages 8, 9, and 10. And the hard wiring of a boy's emotional system and sexual system are not connected. And we don't even have any idea of how the devil of hell is destroying young boys and their manhood. In its very inception, in the germinating stages of what it means to be a young man. And that's my assignment as a dad to attempt to build the truth into my life into my family's life so that truth hasn't stumbled in the streets truth is there pushing back against
1: evil you know i like to liken a dentist to the analogy of when you you come in say you've been out for the evening with the family and you come into the house the lights are all off the room is very dark and somebody might observe as you're walking through the front door gee it's pretty dark in here but what's the first thing they call for turn on the lights This room is not necessarily in a condition of having excessive darkness. What's really happening is there is a lack of light. And I think at the core, what you're suggesting here is that godly men need to turn on the light. And as they do so, that light will dispel darkness. The good will dispel evil. And then, as you talk about the the stages, the steps of a man's life... And as he learns how to apply the principles from Scripture to lead and to protect and to serve and to model and and to defend our children, we can make a significant difference. In spite of the fact that, as you suggest, you know, evil's got an easy pipeline into our homes these days with the internet and to cable television and all of these things that that surely make parenting today certainly more difficult but not impossible, because we have a weapon that God has given to us that, that is as strong today as it was when that book was first written.
2: Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave his life, I believe, in his early 30s for his faith in Germany. He refused to join Hitler's army and was ultimately uh, became a martyr for his faith in Christ. But he made this statement. He said, It's the righteous man who lives for the next generation uh someone else said our children are the living messengers we send to a time we will not see here's the question for a man a father a grandfather maybe a single guy what kind of message are you going to send to the next generation what's your imprint on other people's lives for Jesus Christ that leaves the mark of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace to to imprint that on the next generations Lives, so they're going to make a difference when you're
1: gone. So you're suggesting, Dennis, even today, as we see a lot of debate about the debt ceiling and how we are passing this huge amount of indebtedness on to, to future generations, to our children and our grandchildren, that perhaps for the Christian man, the question of what we're going to leave, the legacy that we will leave for future generations is one of an even grander and, and more critical and more serious answer, isn't it?
2: There's, in my opinion, the battleground for, for the nation, we, we certainly have to have fiscal responsibility. We have to have godly leaders in Washington, D.C., and the state houses of all 50 states. But I want to tell you something. America ca- has survived um, political corruption. It cannot survive the breakdown of its most basic unit, the family. No nation will survive that breakdown. Martin Luther King Jr. made this statement. He said, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And you said it a few minutes ago, Craig. I I think it's, it's our choices. The choices we make. Deciding to be God's man, and it's why I like the title of the book, Stepping Up. It's just amazing how often men use that with one another. Uh, You know, I I stepped up. I made the commitment. Um, Whether it's a single guy listening right now who's who's avoided making the commitment of marriage, there's a lot of guys today prolonging adolescence wanting to be single and have fun and not assume responsibility well into their 30s. There are even those who are sociologists, Craig, who are recommending that we prolong adolescence for another 10 to 15 years. That's not the solution. That's not the kind of men we need today. We need guys who are willing to say, you know what, give me the ball. Give me the responsibility. I'm going to fail. I may fail forward, but I'm going to step up. I'm going to attempt to make my mark for Jesus Christ to make a difference. I'm just one man. You're just one man, Craig. But, um, y- you know, each of us has given a sphere of responsibility. We-, we try to do our best. I, I-, I look at my life someday, and the-, the longer I live, the more I believe the cross is the hope for me and all of all of humanity because we are desperate. Desperately sick with selfishness and sin. We have missed the mark. And so it's not a matter of being perfect, but it is a matter of stepping up in faith and saying, God, I want to be your man.
1: We so often will take a look at the Sunday football game or the results of the baseball or basketball game and opine about certain players and say, you know, so and so just needs to step up. Maybe it's time now for each and every man in the faith. To take that own advice, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood. The new book, by the way, available through the resource ministry of Family Life at FamilyLife.com. That's FamilyLife.com. The broadcast, Family Life Today, weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. And the author of Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, our special guest on this edition of Lifeline, Dennis Rainey. Dennis, as always, an education to visit with your brother. Appreciate your time today, and uh, we'll catch you on the radio, as they say, uh, tomorrow at 8.30 a.m.
2: It's a privilege, Craig. Great to be with you. And now back
0: to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You know, when you think about your relationship with others, so much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process the way we we mentally construct our image of god who we perceive him to be and to a large effect as my guest asserts tonight the way we view god also has a profound impact on our physical mental and obviously spiritual health how do we go to about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view god or think of god and the way it impacts so many parts of our life. Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board certified Christian psychiatrist and master psychopharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11 and he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program.
3: Thank you. It's a delight to be here.
1: Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity, um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians four eight that whatever the things that we think about. And so, if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God?
3: Yeah, and and that's a great point. I I think the point you're making is is great on several levels. One, science, brain science is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible, rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us.
1: We hear things uh, such as uh, folks that are out there in the world of uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it?
3: absolutely and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect in the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill that uh, you not only get pain relief but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and kephlins which are brain produced opiates or painkillers so you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill but if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins so you don't get the pain relief so something as simple as that uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe
1: Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not, and I'm pleased to report that in the decade, her her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly, those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well being, why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God based on maybe the, the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God?
3: You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator who constructed his universe to operate on. On design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these these construction protocols that nature operates on, being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator imposing arbitrary law, human type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process, and things changed. And you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the Crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to imposed rules you better keep or else.
1: And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, um, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships.
3: Absolutely. And what's what's, uh, striking is that most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, somebody. In a Wiccan camp worshiping you know white witchcraft and these they would say, Oh yeah, that's gonna be that what's striking though is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed them, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God. And and all within Christianity, and what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and and how Actually, structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health.
1: From your position as a physician, Where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, God construct in our minds? And then the ultimate impact that it has on not only in in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life.
3: I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I, um, was challenged by my faculty who by and large didn't believe in god and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have down on those who do look on god as somehow being on unen- believe in god as somehow being unenlightened in some way and so they really challenged us and we had to read the theorists like freud and jung and adler and and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great god concept and uh, these ideas were very challenging for me and i had the premise that okay i believe god is real if he is real then the evidence should support that His- we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's word And not have to simply say Well I believe And I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts And uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols The evidences that were there And it's been fantastic and, and rewarding And, and validating to, to discover That the Christian viewpoint Is much more um, scientific Much more evidence based Much more reliable Than a viewpoint that exc- God.
1: Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship, in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take. Two identical generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition age weight, etc etc, find one who has a strong positive viewpoint. On, uh, on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients?
3: Well, it, it, yes, and it even is a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, and who is self-sacrificial and benevolent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is, is, cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them? Hmm. See, that is even more striking when people, and I have patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that.
1: Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and and ultimately the way your your belief system works.
3: Yes, and and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors, and this chronic, activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chronic fear and anxiety going. Whereas, if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the anterior cingulate of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So, just as the Bible teaches, perfect love cat- pass out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true.
1: Mm, I want to go deeper on this, doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. and, and, And it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong. And it doesn't go your way, and it doesn't feel good, and you just don't, you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life, written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.